Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's press conference following President Biden's announcement of his budget, at which almost all the questions from reporters were about Biden's recent remark in Poland that, quote, for God's sake, this man, meaning Putin, cannot remain in power. Joining us to discuss how much Biden's rhetoric is complicating or escalating the tense standoff between the two nuclear powers over Putin's brutal war in Ukraine is Christopher Shivas, a senior fellow and director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. With more than two decades of experience working on U.S. foreign policy and national security challenges, he previously served in the United States Department of Defense and most recently served as the U.S. National Intelligence Officer for Europe at the National Intelligence Council. We will discuss his article at The Guardian, Biden is walking a tightrope with Ukraine, what's his next step? And Biden's refusal today to walk back his remarks, making it clear he was expressing moral outrage, not calling for regime change. Biden went on to explain the difference between his personal feelings and policy, saying people, meaning Putin, like this should not be ruling countries. But they do. The fact that they do doesn't mean I can't express my outrage about it. Then we'll speak with an expert on the intersection between Russian organized crime and their intelligence services and speak with Olga Lautman, a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin Files podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine, their impact on the West, and the monitoring of active measures campaigns conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. We will go over in depth the history of Trump's ties to the Soviet Union and Russia, making the case that Putin controls our former traitor-in-chief. Olga is concerned that if Trump returns to the White House, the first thing he will do is pull the U.S. out of NATO as his opening gift to Putin, who she makes clear, as the former head of U.S. intelligence has done, that Putin is Trump's case officer. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Christopher Shivers, who's a senior fellow and director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. With more than two decades of experience working on U.S. foreign policy and national security challenges, he previously served in the United States Department of Defense and most recently served as the United States National Intelligence Officer for Europe at the National Intelligence Council. And he has an article at The Guardian, Biden is walking a tightrope with Ukraine. What's his next step? Welcome to Background Briefing, Christopher Shivers. 
Thank you, Ian. It's good to be back on your program. Well, thanks for joining us. And your article in The Guardian came out before Biden made his next step, (laughs) if I can use the title of your piece, which uh, was in a fiery speech he gave in Poland on Saturday to say, uh, to end the speech essentially by saying, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, referring, of course, to Putin. He had a press conference today following the announcement of his his new budget, uh, at which many, many questions were made about that remark. Now, the gist of your article in The Guardian was that while it makes sense for the U.S. and NATO to do everything they can to help the Ukrainians fight the Russians in order to bring about a peace settlement, because unless the Ukrainians flicked enough pain on Putin and his military, it's not likely that Putin's going to give up. But on the other hand, you're very concerned that actions are not taken to escalate the situation further. So where do you think we stand now? Well, I mean, it's clear that uh, this um, what appears to have been an ad-libbed comment by the president in Poland over the weekend, especially against the backdrop of uh, comments that were made uh, a week or so earlier than that, saying that uh, Putin was a war criminal, um, we are certainly moving in a more escalatory direction in terms of the U.S. rhetoric. Um, the question is whether or not the escalation of the rhetoric will lead to an escalation of Putin's military actions in Ukraine or possibly against directly against uh, Europe or the United States, for example, in the form of a cyber attack. Some people have speculated that, that that they will, that this rhetorical escalation on the part of the United States will, will lead to a military escalation on the part of Russia. And, and of course, that is a possibility. Although my main concern about these comments actually isn't so much about the effect that they could have on Russian escalation as it is uh, about the ways in which they tend to shut off avenues for a diplomatic resolution of this settlement of, of this of this conflict that the challenge is that you know after you call a foreign leader a war criminal and then say that he cannot remain in power it becomes extremely difficult to sit down at the negotiating table with that leader in this case Vladimir Putin uh, and try to negotiate some kind of, of a settlement to this conflict and for those of us who have been emphasizing the importance of diplomacy and negotiation and the diplomatic track, um, you know, we tend to think that America does have ultimately to come into those negotiations and play a real role in order for the Kremlin to take them seriously. And these kinds of comments just make that so much more difficult. So is that to say that the talks are to begin tomorrow in Turkey? between Ukraine and Russia, and I'm not sure at what level. Lavrov did appear there earlier, so I'm assuming it will be a resumption of those talks. Is that to say that they're not sufficient? I, I think that they're, it's a good thing that these talks are going on. There are multiple channels, obviously, Israel, Turkey, France, uh, potentially some other European leaders are also involved. This is all uh, important, uh, and it's important that there are, are these direct talks between the Ukrainians and the Russians. But what I'm saying is, is that uh, for my assessment is, is that for any agreement to actually stick in the long run and for the Russians to actually take an agreement seriously, the United States at some point 
would have to be would have to be involved. That's just how Vladimir Putin understands the world. He takes the views of he puts enormous weight on the uh, views of the U.S. president. Uh, he tends to to see other members of NATO, especially in military terms, as simply doing what uh, Washington wants. And that's not correct, of course. That's an incorrect view of the world. Uh, but when you think that that's how how NATO works, uh, you tend to put an enormous amount of weight on what the American president says far over and above what European leaders say. So all of this for me indicates that at some point the United States will need to come in to these talks uh, in some way, shape or form in order to get uh, in order to get Russia to, to do what we want it to do, which is to, to withdraw its forces and stop killing Ukrainians. And again, I'm speaking with Christopher Shivers, who's a senior fellow and director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. With more than two decades of experience working on U.S. foreign policy and national security challenges, he previously served in the United States Department of Defense and most recently served as the U.S. National Intelligence Officer for Europe at the National Intelligence Council. And he has an article at The Guardian, Biden is walking a tightrope with Ukraine. What's his next step? So if... Putin then is an important audience for Biden's remarks. How do you think Biden did in the press conference following his announcement of his budget, where almost all the questions were about these remarks? And Biden said, I'm not walking anything back. The fact of the matter is I was expressing the moral outrage I felt towards the way Putin is dealing and the actions of this man, which is just brutality. I want to make it clear I wasn't then, nor am I now, articulating a policy change. I was expressing moral outrage that I feel. I make no apologies for it. How would that fall on Putin's ears? Well, I mean, I think it's obviously he's trying to make the case that it's possible to distinguish between the personal emotions of the president, in this case, moral outrage at what Putin has been doing, which many of us, of course, share, and the policies of the U.S. government. And I suppose that, you know, in theory, that is a distinction that, that, that can be made. Um, it's certainly possible to imagine that the American president experiences, you know, different impulses and emotions and is wise enough uh, not to act on them at any one point in time. And that in formulating policy will take into account a range of different things beyond simply what his emotions are in the moment. And I think that's the case that President Biden was trying to make. So theoretically, it certainly is possible. But 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 the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, uh, in practice, uh, it, it's, it's a very difficult distinction to, to make effectively. Uh, and that's why so many people jumped on jumped on the statement when he made it over the weekend. I think what was good about his comments this afternoon was the fact that he did appear to leave open when pressed the possibility of some kind of negotiation with Putin. At least he did not say that he was going to rule it out. He did not go so far as to say, I will not negotiate with Vladimir Putin. That would have been that would have been problematic and it would have it would have been even more of an escalation in terms of the rhetoric on the US side. So I think that the fact that he left that open was it was a good thing. And in terms of what concerns you, or the concerns that you expressed in your recent article, The Guardian, Biden is walking a tightrope with Ukraine. What's his next step? Biden did address the notion of escalation and said <clears throat> that nobody believes I was talking about taking down Putin. The last thing I want to do is engage in a land war or a nuclear war with Russia. 
And, and I think that genuinely is the president's view. I think that there's two sides of Biden that we've seen in this um, in his relationship with Putin over the course of the last couple of years. You have on the one side the the view that uh, came out over the weekend, which is really this uh, mix of frustration, um, real dislike of Putin as a as an individual, as someone who acts in an autocratic way. I can only imagine that for uh, someone like President Biden, who was raised in, on a very consensus uh, form of politics coming up through the Senate uh, and an American political system. Someone like Vladimir Putin is really a nemesis in terms of all of his values to everything that Biden believes is good in the world. And that's before you even get into the, the horrific kind of violence that, uh, that Putin has imposed on the people of Ukraine. So I think there is this really very, very strong animosity that, that Biden feels for Putin. Um, but on the other hand, you also have the fact that Biden is, is a realist uh, and to a, a large degree a, a pragmatist. And this is you know, arguably one of the things that separates him from some of the other politicians, both in the Democratic and in the Republican Party. And his realism you know, is, is grounded in the fact that he is, he is deeply concerned about passing his domestic legislation. And he really came into office hoping to rejuvenate of the American uh, America itself and to focus on domestic policy and healing the rifts that have sprung up in our country over the course of the last few years. And he knows perfectly well that this conflict with Russia, the, the war in Ukraine, uh, only stands to, to complicate those domestic objectives. And ultimately what he wants to be remembered for, I would guess, are, is passing uh, domestic legislation, making progress on our domestic issues, not fighting this war. So this other side of him, this realist and pragmatist side, I think, um, are also in play. And, and what we see is a sort of back and forth between the realist part of him that wants to avoid war and try and contain this conflict as much as possible, and then the, the, the part of him that just viscerally uh, hates Vladimir Putin. So could you then say that Putin has derailed Biden's agenda, because this is Putin's war of choice. It's clearly complicating Biden's agenda and stalling his domestic agenda. And all you have to do is look at the press conference today following his announcement of his new budget. Nobody wanted to talk about the, the budget. They all wanted to talk about these remarks he made in Poland. I think that's exactly right, Ian. I mean, obviously, it's, it's complicated. Um, you know, the, the war has had the um, effect of helping his it appears to be helping his popularity in the polls to some degree which is of course the the, the normal effect um on a president's approval ratings when there is a foreign conflict and the president has the opportunity to act as the commander-in-chief as biden has done uh, in recent uh, in recent weeks and months so it's, it's it does help him to some degree uh but it also opens him to all kinds of, of criticism uh, both uh on from the right uh, and as you point out, um, really reduces the bandwidth for dealing with the things that he really wants to deal with and the things that he has really sort of wagered his, his presidency on. And again, those are, those are domestic things. It's the environment, uh, it's jobs, uh, and it's making progress on, on healing the rifts that, that exist in America itself today. So how far back does Biden, Biden mentioned, you know, he made a joke about he's been around for 100 years. He even mentioned talking to Kasigan, which really goes back a long way. But how far back do you think his animus towards Putin goes? 
It's a good question. I mean, certainly it, it goes back to 2016 and Russia's decision to interfere in uh, America's elections, that presidential elections that year. I think that that was a, a turning point for many Democrats, uh, among whom um, resentment against Putin had been building since at least the, the 2014 uh, annexation of Crimea and, and in some circles, uh, even since the 2008 Russia-Georgia war, which was, of course, followed by the, the failure of the reset. You remember the, the effort in the early Obama years to try and reset the relationship with Russia, which ran, ran aground of um, a number of different problems, uh, including Russian intransigence and, and ultimately uh, lack of trust in what the United States was trying to put forward. Um, but, but certainly beginning in 2016 with the, the meddling in the elections, uh, there was a very strong feeling uh, among many Democrats that uh, Putin was it was even bigger problem than people had had understood him to be in the past. That sense was was only intensified over the course of the Trump administration because of Trump's warm relationship uh, with this autocrat, as well as uh, Russia's um, cyber attacks in 2020. Uh, it's a poisoning of uh, of Navalny in uh, in 2020. Uh, followed up, of course, um, by the massing of Russian forces back early on in 2021 on Ukraine's border um, and other efforts to try to, to meddle with uh, and, and complicate Biden's Biden's presidency. So it's something that has been building building for a long time. Uh, but again, you, you, you do have this realist side uh, and practical side of President Biden, I think, has also showed, shown itself um, over the course of the last decade. Well, given that you were the U.S. National Intelligence Officer for Europe at the National Intelligence Council, Christopher Shivas, I'm sure you are aware of Putin's past, not so much going back to Dresden and, uh, with the KGB, but once he became the head of the FSB and then Yeltsin's prime minister and then replacing Yeltsin as president. And one of the first actions he did was to blow up a bunch of apartment buildings on the outskirts of Russia, killing over 300 of his own citizens in order to get into the Chechen war where he's promised to strangle the Chechens in the outhouse. That information's always been there, the fact that this guy has been said. In fact, I think Biden himself said he's a killer. Why was that never really publicly discussed until recently where Anthony Blinken brought up Putin's record in terms of the brutality towards his own people, let alone towards the Ukrainian people? Was a decision made there? Did Biden greenlight Blinken to change the? Yeah, I, I have, I have, I have no idea about that. I mean, I think that the, you know, the the way that Washington in general has looked at Russia has evolved, um, you know, into sort of into we're starting into a third phase of um, thinking about Russia with the war in Ukraine. I mean, the first phase was. The phase in the 1990s where most of the effort was focused on trying to transform Russia into a liberal democracy uh, through, you know, uh, shock therapy and other policies. And that hope that Russia would transform lasted uh, at least up until around about the time of the 2008 uh, Russia-Georgia war. Um, of course, the United States was um, was focused on terrorism as a problem after 2000 and 2001. Um, but even that that hope that uh, you know Russia would change lingered to some degree during the reset. Uh, but obviously, uh, by the time the 2014 annexation of Crimea came around, um, we were into a different way of thinking about 
about Putin, which uh, recognized that Russia was not going to transform anytime uh, soon into a liberal democracy, if ever. But there was a hope of trying to find at least some kind of a stable relationship. And that and that uh, policy continued really up until the beginning of the Biden administration. But obviously, with you know starting in the fall, with what appears to be a clear recognition on the part of the U.S. intelligence community that uh, Putin intended uh, to invade Ukraine, um, uh, that has that has you know radically changed the view of Putin again. And we're now on to a third way of thinking about him that I think will um, will affect our policy going forward, including. Uh, you know, greater recognition of the kind of um, uh, things that Putin has done has done in the past. Well, Biden, in fact, said today at his press conference, uh, people like this, in other words, people like Putin should not shouldn't be ruling countries, but they do. The fact they do doesn't mean I can't express my outrage about it. So that does seem to be a change that we're literally talking about who this man is along with what he does, as opposed to treating him as a head of state with all the diplomatic niceties that attend that. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think that if you watch the way that the conversation in Washington, D.C. is is going, and I imagine to some degree in some European circles, um, plans are being made quite rapidly uh, for a very, very different kind of relationship with Russia going forward. Um, For example, you know, you hear discussions about bringing Ukraine into NATO, into the EU. You hear discussions about massive military assistance to Ukraine. You hear, uh, you know, discussions about completely severing the economic relationship between Europe and Russia. Um, Massive efforts to reinforce NATO's eastern flank uh, in countries from the Baltics to Poland to Romania. So there is there is a huge amount of uh, and this is in addition to discussions, obviously, about regime change, regardless of what the president said. You do have people in Washington, D.C. who believe that what we ought to be pushing for is a revolution in Russia that would overthrow the current regime. So there is a there is a huge tide of pressure for a new kind of a relationship with Russia. The question that I have as I listen to these discussions is is whether or not we really know what kind of a Russia we're going to be dealing with in five years uh, or in 10 years. Uh, indeed, whether we really know, uh, you know, what our relationship with Europe uh, is going to be like, what Europe's internal uh, unity is going to look like in five years or 10 years, because if we're going to determine the shape of America and Europe's relationship with uh, what is, like it or not, a nuclear power uh, for the next decade or more, we need to be pretty sure that we have a good sense of of, of, of what the main uh, factors are going to be, what Russia is going to look like, what Europe is going to look like. And what's going to be realistic to expect of to expect of uh, of ourselves in, in Washington D.C., given all of the other pressures that are going to weigh upon our country uh, in the next decade uh, or two? Well, it's possible, isn't it, Christopher Shivers? Just in the last couple of minutes here, that somebody worse than Putin could show up. There's no question about it. I mean, I think the 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 the, the challenge when you start to think about transitions of power. In Russia, I mean, obviously, a lot of people, I think, have in mind a happy story where there is a peaceful revolution in in the streets and Vladimir Putin is walked out of the Kremlin by freedom fighters. You know, we would all love to see that happen, I think. Um, But that seems to me to be the least likely of an unlikely category of scenarios where Putin is overthrown. You also obviously have uh, the possibility 
that he is overthrown by an equally, if not more nationalist uh, leader, um, or you have the possibility that there is a violent overthrow, which itself uh, leads to great instability in Russia. Another uh, circumstance which would be very, very difficult for the United States and its NATO allies to deal with right now. So the, 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 the situation when you think about regime change or any kind of a transition in Moscow right now is it's not all happy stories. These are all uh, things um, which carry with them great risk for, for America and for, and for the world. Well, Christopher Shivas, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And I've been speaking with Christopher Shivers, who's a senior fellow and director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. With more than two decades of experience working on U.S. foreign policy and national security challenges, he previously served in the United States Department of Defense and most recently served as a U.S. National Intelligence Officer for Europe at the National Intelligence Council. He has an article at The Guardian, Biden is walking a tightrope with Ukraine. What's his next step? We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with an expert on the intersection between Russian organized crime and their intelligence services. You're the first to fight. You wait too loud. You're the first to light on a burial shroud. I know something's wrong. But everyone I know has got a reason to say, put the past away. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Olga Lautman, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin Files podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations, and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine, their impact on the West, and the monitoring of active measures campaign conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. Welcome to Background Briefing, Olga Lautman. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And is the history of of this fusion between organized crime and intelligence in Russia or in the Soviet Union, does it go back to, I mean, I, I there's always been the Vori Vazakoni, the, the thieves-in-law, the, the tattooed gangsters, but my understanding is that during the Brezhnev period of stagnation, that the only way that the economy could work was through the black market and that the KGB regulated the black market, a lot of which was Chechens bringing produce up from the south, and that, in effect, it was the KGB's officers monitoring the black market so that the economy didn't crash, that they were the kind of the first Russian capitalist. Is that, is that a, an accurate description? Yes, that's pretty accurate. I mean, you had the black market running under Brezhnev, um, they, the organized crime groups weren't as prevalent, but um, any organized members who, you know, well, at that time it wasn't really organized crime groups that came in the later 80s, but anyone involved in black market activities 
um, had to do so under the protection and with the cooperation of the KGB. And is it true that as the Soviet Union began to collapse, I mean, I guess after Brezhnev through Andropov and into to Gorbachev, that the KGB saw the writing on the wall and they raided the Soviet Treasury and parked a lot of money stolen from the Treasury in New York, which was, they used the, again, the Brighton Beach mob as a kind of cutout and a lot of these, and a lot of this money went into Trump real estate and was washed through the Trump casinos. Was was that an mo to create a kind of bridgehead here in the United States? Absolutely, and it's an interesting dynamic. Well, first, uh, Khrushchev at the time saw the writing of on the wall. Right, um, Khrushchev was the head of the KGB. Yes, and he moved about approximately $50 billion out of the Soviet Union. And it was done both in the United States and in Canada and across Europe. He had a few you know, main players who were involved. And this was Bernstein, who is in Canada. Uh, he's still living in Canada through his um, shell. He established a network of shell companies um, basically operating under Cibico. And then you had it through the Russian organized crime in Brighton Beach. Um, and it's very interesting because, for instance, I had spoken with uh, Klugin, who was head of KGB counterintelligence. And he used to come to Brighton Beach for recruitment, you know, of uh, KGB spies in U.S. So you had this kind of intersection back then between um Mafia between uh, intel- Russian intelligence, well, Soviet intelligence at the time, and then it went into Russian intelligence. And we saw these network of shell companies that now are finally being dealt with, being established then towards the late 80s. And then you saw it through the 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And again, I'm speaking with Olga Lautman, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin Files podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations, and tactics used for their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine, their impact on the West, and the monitoring of active measures campaigns conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. Well, one of the ironies, of course, was that the Senator Jackson, uh, otherwise from the Democratic Senator from Washington State, who used to be referred to as the Senator from Boeing, he uh, put an amendment on assault, the SALT II Treaty called the jackson vanek Amendment, and that was organized around the notion of uh, the campaign to free Soviet Jewry. And my understanding is that the Russians emptied the gulags with a lot of these gangsters, the, the Vori, and that, in fact, the diaspora behind the free Soviet Jewry movement, a lot of the money to get people out of the Soviet Union went through KGB accounts, some of it into Brezhnev's pockets, you know, for him to build the world's largest luxury and antique car collection. And that uh, remember when Castro dumped all those criminals in the Mariel boat lift 
Well, the same thing happened earlier, wasn't it, with Jackson Vanek? Didn't they dump a lot of their criminals on the United States? Absolutely. And not only criminals, also KGB agents. Um, and again, Kalugin had, was part of setting up that program. And he had insisted, you know, that uh, they should start allow, uh, to allow um, Soviet Jews out of the Soviet Union for two reasons. One was to ease the tensions inside of the Soviet Union because uh, Jews were, um, you know, had a lot of pressure and were not, they had very difficult circumstances living inside the Soviet Union. So one was to ease the domestic pressure and also, you know, the criticism from the West. And the second was to move in the criminals as well as um, KGB agents. And what Kalugin has said is that in this, you know, exodus of Soviet Jews who came to the United States and to Israel all the time, you would have uh, KGB agents embedded in them. And then a few years later, after they assimilated, they would, you know, a KGB agent from uh, from uh, the Soviet Union would come to U.S. and approach them and tell them, you know, you remember who what you all was to, at, in the homeland and kind of reactivate them. And this is why you saw, again, this whole cross-section. They were getting into organized crime here in Brighton Beach. And at the same time, they were working closely in U.S. with uh, Soviet intelligence agencies. Now, in fact, Kalugan told me that one of the problems the KGB had with these gangsters in Brighton Beach was the minute they came to the United States, they were in the, in this sort of candy land of milk and honey where there were so many rackets they got into, you know, New York City taxi medallions, gasoline tax and Medicare fraud, all of these rackets, and they threw away their KGB contacts just to make money and that the KGB were furious with them. <laughs> Is that your understanding? Yes and no, because a lot of them still maintained contacts with the KGB, mm. and even though they got so involved in you know local crime here, and at the time they became intertwined with the Italian mafia, which eventually, by the mid-'80s, they started uh, breaking relations and kind of went more on their own, but um, they still maintained contacts within. I mean, there were quite a few who continued to work with the KGB and under the protection of the KGB. And we have, like, for instance, uh, Sam Kislin in New York, who, um, you know, had an electronics store in Manhattan. And it was kind of sorts of a clearinghouse where Soviet diplomats and KGB officials would come to this electronic store. And from my sources and that I've spoken to, um, it was kind of used of information being passed to people here in New York. So when Bogatin and Markowitz, these two Brighton Beach gangsters, started to buy condos in Trump Tower, paying in cash, and also there's a lot of money laundering going on in Trump's casinos. Why did they target Trump? Did they know anything prior to Trump's first trip to Moscow in July of 1987? Why did, at the end of the day, something like 3,200 
condos in Trump's properties get bought through Russian shell companies via these Brighton Beach mobbers cutouts. Well, that's an interesting story. So um, Trump uh, was very entangled with the Italian mafia. At the time in the late 70s through up to mid-80s, the Italian mafia started working very closely with you know, the organi- the Russian organized crime on Brighton Beach. And I mean, they ran several uh, scams together, including the gasoline scandal. So there was a lot of uh, like intertwining between the Italian mafia and the Russian mafia. And Trump was involved in the Russian, I mean, in the Italian mafia. Also, his father had Trump village in Brighton Beach, which would have exposed him to the Russian mafia side of it. Um, And at the time, uh, there is a story that Sam Kislin was the first one who had pretty much uh, took notice of Trump and, and approached him and had provided televisions for him for his uh, uh, Commodore Hotel project. And that was actually the first interaction, and that was in the early 80s, between uh, uh, Kislin and Trump. And Kislin, by several people, I was told that he was uh, both KGB, and then eventually he would go and work with the mafia in the early 90s when he set up his uh, company, um, you know, to help move money. Um, so that was the first interaction, and it's a, it was a very small circle. And then from there, you saw Bogdan come in, and then um, at the same time, Trump also had another associate, um, Ron Lauder, who had invited Trump to a luncheon that uh, had uh, the UN ambassador, or I think he was UN ambassador Cherkin at the time, and that is how Trump got the invite to go to Moscow. Um, was through this luncheon. But what is interesting that after our 2016 election, um, a Russian media outlet that is connected with FSB, which is, you know, uh, after KGB fell, it broke into FSB and uh, SBR, that um, an article came out by a woman with her comments about uh, Natalia Dubanina about this interaction. So we previously knew that Trump had met Cherkin and her father, who had just arrived um, and became the UN ambassador, uh, Soviet ambassador to UN, um, Yuri Dubinin. We had known about their first interaction during this luncheon. But then through this um, comment that she gave to this Russian media outlet, nine hours after our 2016 election and that uh, when Trump was uh, announced the winner, um, it had said that she had picked up her father. She was working at the UN um, Soviet library and she had picked up her father at the airport. They were driving and it had to be around March of 1986. And she, um, uh, so they drove by Trump Tower she looked up, her father, you know, loved the building and they parked the car, apparently walked in, had lunch with Trump. And this is where, you know, basically, according to her words, 
Trump melted at her, you know, father's comments and in her father's presence, even though her father didn't speak English. And that was one of the critiques of why was he sent here if he didn't have a word of English? So, I mean, it was interesting because there's more to the story there. I don't know if that meeting actually took place or if she had placed uh, her commentary to kind of give a warning to Trump after he um, won the election. Like we remember you from the 1980s and, um, you know, and kind of like give him a warning and, and he needs to know what to do. So that was a very interesting story. And then from there, he went to Moscow, um, then to St. Petersburg, and then he came back. And another interesting thing happened. He placed ads. And at the time, he was known for being extremely frugal. He placed ads in three U.S. media outlets that he paid for, basically attacking U.S. foreign policy and for us assisting, you know, Japan at the time. And uh, the ads were titled, like, U.S. foreign policy needs to develop a backbone. So he was basically spouting KGB talking points in this ad that he had placed. Right. Then we're continuing the conversation with Olga Lautman, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin Files podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations, and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine, their impact on the West, and the monitoring of active measures campaigns conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. So just to go back a little over what you just told us, Olga, the luncheon was organized by Ron Lauder, who was the heir to the Estee Lauder fortune, right? And Natalia Dubinina, at the time, she was married to a guy who ended up he was a KGB guy who ended up as Putin's ambassador to the UK and who covered up the Skripal poisoning. So uh, my understanding is that she is now retired, living in Paris, publishing children's books. But, I mean, she's a very, very attractive woman. She was only, what, 19 or 18 at the time. And I think that was a part of why Trump was melting. And I thought that she went to Moscow with him on those trips and set him up and that's where I was told they they did the first honey trap on him was that your understanding I have heard the story I never confirmed that part of the story yeah. um uh what you're saying about Yakovlev the ambassador to UK that yeah. is correct she was temporarily married to him eventually he was working also in the Soviet mission to UN and then eventually by 87 he was expelled out of the United States. But I mean, I, that potentially was the first honey trap. I mean, there were plenty along the way, but um, potentially that was the first one in 1987. So what happened then, just to get an, an idea of, of how this nexus between Russian or Soviet and then Russian intelligence and organized crime. I mean, the thing that's always bothered me, and it's this is unique in geopolitics, Olga, is we've never had the combination of national security and organized crime, nuclear weapons and the mafia. And now you've got this war going on in Ukraine where Putin is threatening to use nuclear weapons. 
this is really almost impossible to deal with. The idea that you've got a gangster regime threatening to use nukes. I don't think the world has ever been in, in such danger, has it? No. And that's exactly what it is. And unfortunately, when people, you know, hear about the mafia, they think of like, you know, Italian mafia, Goodfellas, where the Italian mafia maybe compromised prosecutors and local police officers, but it was more for their own gain and to, you know, uh, do their corrupt scams and scandals and, you know, to have cover for it. Whereas with the Russian mafia, there's a complete difference because, I mean, there is an extremely fine line, I mean, almost non-existent between the Kremlin, the Russian oligarchs, uh, Russian mafia, and Russian intelligence. And at one point or another, they all either acted in one of these roles, multiple roles, or they worked alongside. And for instance, after the Soviet Union collapsed in Russia, there is not one oligarch who was able to build himself up without the participation of uh, working with uh, FSB. So, I mean, there is this nexus between, you know, these four avenues. And then on top, you have, you know, Russia is, is a big nuclear power. So extremely, we're in a very difficult, you know, situation. And another thing of interest is that the Kremlin used the Russian mafia as kind of, you know, their way of either selling weapons or collecting compromise on people where they can have their hands free and have plausible deniability. Just like they use, you know, their cyber criminals, uh, as the West calls them, you know, to conduct cyber attacks against colonial pipeline or solar winds. And then they're like, oh, well, these are criminals. We have no knowledge of it. Meanwhile, these criminals are operating under Russian intelligence services. They're not going to conduct, you know, attacks on this scale without having permission from Russian intelligence services or even being aided in receiving the logistical support. So, Olga, there's no way then to dissociate organized crime from the Russian state. In other words, there's no cadre left of Russian patriots, people that serve the nation as opposed to serve themselves and their criminal cronies. Well, in Putin's regime, absolutely not. And you have, you know, all of his... uh, uh, officials who he has in prominent positions. Again, they have worked with Russian mafia going back to St. Petersburg days where Putin served as a deputy mayor and was very closely at the time working with Russian mafia inside of St. Petersburg. Um, and pretty much everyone around his circle comes, you know, from this time period. So you have even like the deputy of FSB who was just appointed a year ago, um, you know, an investigation revealed, for instance, that he is connected to uh, this very influential mobster in Spain, uh, Petrov, Gennady Petrov. And, um, you know, and in Spain, he was running operations, not only organized crime operations, but also in recruiting uh, locals within Spain, you know, accountants, lawyers, government officials, and whatnot. So, I mean, it's always 
been this kind of operation that they conduct and then you know the kremlin can come back and say you know we have our hands free we don't know what's happening over here and same thing with mogia levich who was a very crucial part during the late 80s and 90s uh working for the kremlin and you had the same thing he was setting up networks of shell companies collecting compromise there was a story that he actually because one of his uh bases was in hungary that he was uh that he was providing kickback to the Hungarian president Orban and he had evidence that he had given over to Putin and this is how Orban kind of fell into you know the Kremlin's you know circle basically or as i call it one of the Kremlin puppets so uh, unfortunately we've seen via mafia a lot of these operations over the decades um that have national security and geopolitical risks and you mentioned maglevich maglevich is referred to as the godfather of russian organized crime his partner is the father of felix sater uh, who shows up in the Mueller report etc and trump soho i mean back in 1987 uh, natalia dubinina and, and her father were promising trump a trump tower in moscow and flash forward to 2016, 2017, Felix Sater and Michael Cohen are promising Trump a Trump Tower in Moscow, right? <laughs> yes. And you have the same thing with Sam Kislin. So Sam Kislin, you know, allegedly gave Trump television sets on credit for 30 days in the early 1980s. Then he became extremely close with Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani had put um, Kislin on the business council in New York City in the like early mid nineties, um, and Kislin, for his part, you know, flooded the campaign, uh, Giuliani's campaign, with money. And then during the twenty twenty elections. Um, when uh, Giuliani and, you know, his clown show were running around Ukraine working with Russian agents and, and extorting the Ukrainian government in, to open a fabricated investigation um, into Joe Biden's son, Kislin was there involved in negotiations on behalf of that as well. So, I mean, you see the same characters over the decades and they just, you know, uh, continue to operate and and all the major events you see there present. So just then in the last uh, few minutes, Olga, why is it though, we know that FBI counterintelligence has all the information that you and I have just been discussing here today and much, much more. You had the Mueller report. You had the, the Senate intelligence report, which is a bipartisan report. The evidence is all there, although the Mueller report clearly got sidetracked. Why is it that the American authorities cannot nail Donald Trump and expose these ties he has to the Kremlin? I mean, whether he's a useful idiot or an active asset, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. But, you know, Trump, of course, is now suing Hillary Clinton for (laughs) saying that she was working for the Kremlin. I mean... He's obviously very proactive. He always has been. He was schooled by Roy Cohen, who was a lawyer to the mob. So what's wrong here in the United States? Why can't the message get through to the American people about who 
their former president, Donald Trump, is, his ties to Russia. And if he comes back again in 2024, the first thing Trump will do is pull the U.S. out of NATO, which is what he's promised to do. Well, Putin is, you know, in a war now in Ukraine, allegedly against NATO, but he has other motives, of course. So what a gift. I mean, Putin doesn't have to go to war. Trump will just get rid of NATO from within. I mean, I just cannot believe how stupid we are. Uh, you and me both. I never understood. So the reason I got involved publicly was actually because of Donald Trump, because in 2015, I saw on the Russian side them running this operation that looked extremely similar to what they were doing in Ukraine. So I wanted to know exactly why Trump, I went down this, you know, rabbit hole to the 1970s and did a very extensive investigation into Trump and his over a hundred something contacts with Russian organized crime, Kremlin officials, uh, Russian intelligence officials and whatnot. And I mean, this is four decades that he has been operating and he is definitely by no means a useful idiot. He is a a Russian asset, but not in the, you know, terms of a spy movie where you see, you know, Russian assets running around like a, like a Hansen turning a rock over, having a drop location. No, he is an agent of influence. He had very influential, you know, contacts over the years. And that's it. And he is very well aware of what he's doing. This is why you saw his campaign uh, basically include every single person who has you know, who is corrupt and who has worked either for Russia or for Russian interest in other countries that they were trying to, you know, infiltrate. So he definitely knew what he was doing. And I do not understand why we have allowed him to operate this long, because, I mean, there are so many laws that he has broken along the way. And he dealt with like all probably the most influential of Russian organized crime members over the four decades. And he is, you know, a very serious threat. I mean, Russia, their main, you know, one of their main objectives is to subvert democracies. And what better way than putting one of their assets that they absolutely, you know, did everything in their power to help elect, to run the foreign policy, but even more so of running foreign policy for the Kremlin, like you mentioned, of, you know, taking out uh, U.S. out of NATO or how he betrayed the Kurds in uh, Syria when he decided, you know, to, uh, at Putin's request, uh, announce that he was removing U.S. troops from Syria. More so, the division operations he's running inside the country. I mean, my God, the KGB, like, that was one of their main goals is to prove that democracy doesn't work and to sow seeds of doubt in democracy and democratic institutions. And you have one third of Americans who don't believe our election was legitimate, who have no trust in the American government, no trust in Department of Justice. So, I mean, he is running a domestic operation for four, well, now, we're going actually on to the seventh year, Uh, he's running a domestic operation to tear down our institutions. 
and to turn so, Americans uh, and to turn Americans against each other, which is what uh, Putin wants. Absolutely, because you, if you implode a country from within, then you have a weak country. And then, you know, a weak country who is dealing with their domestic issues is not going to be relevant on the world stage. On top of it, you know, the humiliation, I mean, my goodness, we all watched January 6th that Trump orchestrated. He was behind January 6th, you know, I call it a terrorist attack. And we all watched it and you have like, you know, a third of this country, including leaders in office still, who are saying it was like a peaceful protest and like, you know, uh, tourists who were walking through a park. I mean, this is incredible. And then you, you have Russia on their end who start with the propaganda of, oh, why are they arresting these people, peaceful protesters? I mean, I would love to see Russia's peaceful protesters who get arrested for holding a plaque um, you know, scaling the walls of the Kremlin and Russia calling them peaceful protesters. You know, so you have even just to the point where things that we know and we see are happening where they so doubt into it and cause this confusion and run these disinformation operations to kind of water down and make a mockery, frankly, of America on the world stage. Because, I mean, uh, you see at an attack like January 6th, you see a third of the people, including elected officials, who cannot, uh, you know, so say that the election was conducted legitimately and that we had a fair and free election, you see this by our, you know, uh, allies. I mean, that puts fear into them. You know, how can they trust right now? You know, Joe Biden has done an incredible job rebuilding these alliances at such a crucial moment. But if Trump comes in, I mean, you know, this, forget it. We will have a nightmare scenario with the Kremlin, you know, being able to do even more damage, commit more war crimes in the region. So, yeah, no, we can't have Trump come back. And why, I mean, that's, your guess is as good as mine. That is the one thing I could never understand. I mapped out all Trump's contacts, I mapped out all his business dealings, shell companies, regular companies, but I could never understand with this much evidence why he was never prosecuted, you know, for crimes committed in plain sight. Well, Olga Lautman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And I've been speaking with Olga Lautman, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine, their impact on the West, and the monitoring of active measures campaigns conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.